All right, good morning, 11 o'clock, Vero Christian Church. Good to see each one of you here in person today. Glad to have you if you're joining us live streaming as well. You guys know I'm looking around, I think we got the regulars in here. We've been in the sermon series, Obey Everything, based on the commands of Jesus, primarily in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been camping out in the Sermon on the Mount for a couple of months now, where most of Jesus' commands are really are concentrated in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we were looking at this particular command, Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. And uh, because you were here, at least you can go back and access that message if you weren't, then we're looking at how really not to become a wolf, not to get bit by the werewolf, so to speak, and then become a wolf, hold ourselves apart from, that word beware literally means to hold ourselves apart from the false prophets. And last Sunday we said one of the ways we want to do that, I just had this one suggestion, maybe is to be vulnerable, to be vulnerable about our weaknesses and our struggles, something a Pharisee never did. We identified the wolves as the scribes and the Pharisees. A Pharisee never turned to his fellow Pharisees and said, you know, Bob, I've really been struggling with anger lately, really been struggling with covetousness. Um, They never said they've really been struggling with anything because they were self-righteous and developed a blind spot about their own weaknesses. But Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7.20, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. So we don't have to pretend uh, that we are. That, but then I said, and I've got another suggestion, and it's a secret, and I'll deal with that next week, and next week is today. And so the secret's kind of a play on words. What we're going to deal with this morning, and still in this theme, we don't want to become the wolf. We don't want to become a legalist. We don't want to be a hypocrite. And that was one way. And the other way is to have a secret life with the Lord or a private life with the Lord. So I want to look at that in, under four headings today. And the first one is the command, the command of Jesus to have a secret life with God. And we'll give these three examples from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your Father in secret. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 4, give your gifts in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 16, when you fast, don't make it obvious, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Three examples of religious activities that Jesus expects to be done in secret, not in public, or at least if there's a public aspect to it, we're also doing it in secret. Here's a problem with the Pharisees. Again, all their religious activities were performed in public. The only time a Pharisee ever prayed was in public worship because it was being seen by people. The only time a Pharisee ever gave was there in the temple right in front of everybody and, and giving to the temple coffers there. The only time a Pharisee ever fasted, right, was they would mark themselves so everybody would know, I'm fasting. And Jesus said, well, they have the reward. These are the kinds of things you should be doing in secret or in private just between you and God. That's a, a, a red flag for us as well. We don't want to become a Pharisee, and a red flag is the only time we ever read Scripture, for instance, is when we're reading off these screens on Sunday. If the only time we ever pray is in church on Sunday, the only time we ever give, you know, on Sunday, the only time we ever worship is in the public worship, that would be a red flag. Say, wait a minute, you know, there's an aspect that's missing from my spiritual life, and it's the secret private life with God. Okay, so the command for a secret life. Number two, the purpose of the secret life. The purpose of the secret life. 
Let me start with a poem. You may have heard this before. Two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul. The one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. So using that metaphor of the wolf, we want to starve the wolf and we want to feed the image of Christ within us, the Spirit of God within us. We're going to feed one, we're going to starve the other. And maybe they both, you know, we we dabble in a little of both, but our goal is to feed the Spirit and starve the wolf. Of course, the wolfish nature is not the way the Bible describes it. It's usually described as the old man or the old self versus new man, new self, or spiritual self. For example, Colossians 3.9, Paul says, You laid aside the old self with its evil practices. You put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge. Ephesians 4, Lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So this is something we do. We do. Now the Holy Spirit is involved in our sanctification, our transformation into the image of Christ, our putting off of the old, putting on of the new. Holy Spirit's involved. Holy Spirit superintends that process, empowers that process. But the Holy Spirit will not do what we are supposed to do. You know, we... We have to put some effort into this in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So these are things we do. But Paul does not specify, when he says put on the new self, he doesn't specify exactly how do we do that. What's involved in doing that? And maybe part of the reason is it's in part of what Jesus and Paul modeled for us to do. Okay, so third heading here is the models of the secret life, the models of the secret life, or who is modeling that, or who did model that. Of course, we're going to start with Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. We are disciples. We're not disciples of other men. We're not disciples of preachers or pastors or teachers. We're disciples of Christ. We follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. But Paul, the apostle, also said, follow me, 1 Corinthians 11.1. He said, imitate me in exactly the way that I imitate Christ. And again, in Philippians 4.9, Paul, put into practice what you learned and received and heard and saw in me, and the God of peace will be with you. We got Jesus and we got Paul, and then from Paul, we go a level below that to Timothy, whom Paul discipled. And Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, be an example to all the believers in what you say, the way you live, and your love, your faith, and your purity. So there's a succession here, Jesus to the apostles, And then to those the apostles taught, and then later Paul would say to Timothy, the things that you've heard me teach in the presence of many witnesses, and trust a reliable man who will be able to teach others also. So the succession continues, not just of what Jesus taught. That's what we've been focusing on, the commands of Jesus. But a distinction I'm trying to make right here is also what Jesus did. Some of us may have red-letter Bibles. So the red letters are the words that Jesus spoke. But maybe we also should have green letter Bibles. And the green letters are the things that Jesus did. So we can do what he commanded us, but we also do what he did. Of course, some things we can't do that Jesus did. We can't calm a storm. We can't walk on the water. We can't miraculously heal people. But there are other things that Jesus modeled for us in the way he lived that we can do and are supposed to do. For instance, Jesus was a man immersed in Scripture and connected with God. And as such, he knew 
that we have to be involved with the care of the whole person, including our souls. Proverbs 4.23, put everything you have into the care of your heart, for it determines what your life amounts to. Isaiah 26, you will keep those in perfect peace whose minds are fixed on you because they trust in you. Psalm 1-2, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. To take care of our hearts, we must have a plan. And that plan is typically called what we call the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are things that we do as disciples, as Christians, that indirectly enable us to do in cooperation with God what we cannot do directly. Spiritual disciplines are things we do. These are postures we put ourselves in and things we do in our bodies and with our bodies and our minds that indirectly enable us to do what we cannot do directly without God helping us. Let me give you an example because that's kind of confusing. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's got a couple of disciples with him. They come down from the mount. If you remember this scene, his other disciples were at the foot of the mountain and they were trying to cast a demon out of a young boy unsuccessfully. And so Jesus deals with the situation. He casts out the demon. And later on, his disciples ask him, they said, why couldn't we do that? And remember what he answered? He said, this particular kind of demon, a very stubborn, persistent demon, he said, this demon only comes out with prayer and fasting. Now, it's not that prayer and fasting were part of a formula or something that Jesus used to exercise this demon. It's that Jesus as a person in his life, had dedicated himself to the secret, private disciplines of prayer and fasting. And that indirectly enabled him to do spiritual warfare over here, to directly do the spiritual warfare. He would not have been able to do that if he hadn't been doing this over here. Well, this is kind of how spiritual disciplines work. We're doing these things in secret and in private. Indirectly, they allow us to do things we're not going to be able to do if we don't have this dimension in our lives. That's a spiritual discipline. Uh, there are many. We just mentioned prayer and fasting. Those are spiritual disciplines. Prayer and fasting. Study of Scripture. Worship. Service. Giving. There, there, I don't think anybody's ever compiled the exhaustive list of spiritual disciplines. There are many things that could fit into that category. Those that I just said are some of the tried and true what I want to do this morning and the time remaining is focus our attention on a, a secret discipline, a private discipline, and maybe we haven't thought quite as much about. Maybe we never heard a sermon on this before. I never have. I've never preached a sermon on this before. I've never heard a sermon on this before. But I've been doing a lot of reading and study in this area lately, and I want to share some of that with you. And this is the secret of silence and solitude. The secret discipline of silence and solitude. Now, let's get some of the scriptural data before us. Our, our example here, of course, is primarily Jesus. As I read a handful of scriptures and we put them up on the screen, I want you to just let this leave an impression of how much time Jesus spent in solitude starting with uh, the 40 days of temptation, Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He's alone in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, nobody here is ever going to do that. I, I couldn't do it. 
I don't know if that's humanly possible these days to go 40 days and 40 nights. I'm not even suggesting that we try that. Jesus' mission on earth was all out of proportion to ours. So he did 40 days and 40 nights, but we may want to do a day or two. Uh, Let's continue. Matthew 14, 13, Jesus withdrew to a secluded place by himself. Matthew 14, 23, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Mark 1, 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Mark 6, 47, the boat was in the middle of the sea and Jesus was alone on the land. Luke 5, 16, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And John 6, 15, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Doesn't that leave an impression with how much time Jesus purposefully and intentionally put himself in secluded places and spent that time in silence and solitude, often combined with prayer, yes, and sometimes with fasting, silence and solitude. Now, I'm going to do something with you this morning that I've never done before, and it's not necessarily the best communication or homiletics, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to read to you from this book, and it's a long selection. I've timed it. It's going to take me six minutes to read it to you. So as a speaker, that's a long time to be reading to a group. Makes it a little harder for you to stay engaged. So you're gonna, I'm going to ask you to work harder and listen. But this is from, the author is Dallas Willard. This book is called The Divine Conspiracy. Dallas Willard is one of the kings of spiritual disciplines as far as writing and teaching on them. Uh, another book of his I've read is called The Great Omission. All right, we're taking our theme for this sermon series from The Great Commission. But he's written a book called The Great Omission. Just finished that. Excellent book. He's written one called The... Um, the Spirit of the Disciplines. Okay, but it's, he's an author in this area. And uh, as I was reading and studying over the last few months, some, some of Dallas Willard, and he wrote on this discipline of silence and solitude, and I realized I've never really done this. I've done a little of it now, but not enough to speak too authoritatively on it. Not certainly in the way that Dallas addresses it. And he puts it in such a good way, I wanted you to hear it. I want you to hear this. So if you would, listen to me as I read for about six minutes here. And, and maybe this will just spark our interest. And you may think, I, want to give, I may want to give a little of my time to this and kind of begin to understand what this discipline is. All right, so you ready? Hang with me here. By solitude, he writes, we mean being out of human contact, being alone, and being so for lengthy periods of time. To get out of human contact is not something that can be done in a short while, for that contact lingers long after it is in one sense over. Silence is a natural part of solitude and is its essential completion. Most noise is human contact. Silence means to escape from sounds, noises, other than the gentle ones of nature. But it also means not talking. And the effects of not talking on our soul are different from those of simple quietness. Both dimensions of silence are crucial for the breaking of old habits and the formation of Christ's character in us. Now, why precisely are these disciplines so central to Christ-likeness? Well, remember that one primary objective is to break the power of our ready responses to do the opposite of what Jesus teaches. For example, scorn, anger, verbal manipulation, payback, silent collusion, and the wrongdoing of others around us, and so forth. 
these responses mainly exist at what we might call the epidermal. What's the epidermis on the body? The skin. The skin level, the superficial level of the self. The first point of contact with the world around us. They're almost totally automatic given the usual stimuli. Of course, they are the buttons by which human surroundings more or less control us. They are not deep. They're just there and just constant. They are the area, I see, our immediate responses and what, how we've learned to respond. This is the area where most of our life is lived. And in action, they have the power to draw our whole being into the deepest of injuries and wrongs to other people. Now, it is solitude and silence that allow us to escape the pattern of these superficial responses and its consequences. They provide space to come to terms with these responses and to replace them with God's help by different immediate responses that are suitable to the kingdom. They break the pell-mell rush through life and create a kind of inner space that permits people to become aware of what they are doing and what they are about to do. Our superficial responses have to be changed in such a way that the fire and fight doesn't start almost immediately when we're rubbed the wrong way. Solitude and silence give us a place to begin those necessary changes. They also give us some space to reform our inmost attitudes towards people and events. They take the world off our shoulders for a time and interrupt our habit of constantly managing others, of being in control, or thinking we are. One of the greatest of spiritual attainments is the capacity to do nothing. Thus, the Christian philosopher Pascal insightfully remarks, quote, I have discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one simple fact, that they are unable to stay quietly in their own room, end quote. This idea of doing nothing proves to be absolutely terrifying to most people I speak with. But at least the person who is capable of doing nothing might be capable of refraining from doing the wrong thing, and then perhaps he or she would be better able to do the right thing. And doing nothing has many other advantages. It may be a great blessing to others around us who often hardly have a chance while we are in action. And possibly the gentle Father in the heavens would draw near if we would just be quiet and rest a bit. Generally speaking, He will not compete for our attention. And as long as we are in charge, He is liable to keep a certain distance. Every person should have regular periods in life when he or she has nothing to do. Periods of solitude and silence are excellent practices for helping us learn how to do that. The law that God has given for our benefit as well as His tells us that one-seventh of our time should be devoted to doing nothing. No work, not by ourselves or any of our family, employees, or animals. It is to be Sabbath. What do you do in solitude and silence? Well, as far as things to get done, nothing at all. As long as you are doing things to get done, you have not broken human contact. So don't go into solitude and silence with a list. Can we enjoy things in solitude and silence? Yes, but don't try to. Just be there. You will discover incredibly good things. One is that you have a soul. Another, that God is near and the universe brimming with goodness. Another, that others aren't as bad as you often think. But don't try to discover these or you won't. You'll just be busy and find more of your own busyness. The cure for too much to do is solitude and silence. 
For there you find you are safely more than what you do. And the cure for loneliness is solitude and silence. For there you discover in how many ways you are never alone. When you go into solitude and silence, you need to be relatively comfortable. Don't be a hero in this or any other spiritual discipline. You will need rest. Sleep until you wake up truly refreshed. And you will need to stay there long enough for the inner being to become different. Muddy water becomes clear if you only let it be still for a while. Liberation from your own desires is one of the greatest gifts of solitude and silence. When this all begins to happen, you will know you are arriving where you ought to be. Old bondages to wrongdoing will begin to drop off as you see them for what they are. And the possibility of really loving people will dawn upon you. Soon, you may even come to know what it is to live by grace rather than just talking about it. These are some of the fruits of solitude and silence. The disciple will have to learn how to do this, of course. For most of us, wise and loving practical arrangements must be made with those around us. And we should encourage and help family members and fellow workers to enter spiritual disciplines themselves. Final paragraph, obviously. The effects of these disciplines will greatly benefit our first primary objective, to love God with a full heart. For the usual distractions of life greatly hinder our attention to God, and the habit of thinking about everything else is almost impossible to break in the bustle of life. Time away can help. People often complain that they cannot pray because their thoughts wander. Well, those thoughts are simply doing what they usually do. The grip of the usual is what must be broken. Appropriate solitude and silence are sure to do this. Food for thought. If you haven't had this practice in your life, and I've been a Christian for almost 61 years, and I I had never really tried to do this, this may be something we want to incorporate into our secret life with God, silence and solitude. So this past week, I went out to Lake Aurora, out in Lake Wales, and was in the camp there and stayed in a cabin. And, and I, from Thursday night, sundown Thursday night to sundown Friday night, silence and solitude. Didn't watch any TV, didn't get on the videos on my phone, didn't talk to anybody, didn't actually do anything, didn't read anything, did a lot of walking, did a little swimming, and a lot of sitting, and just in silence. And let me tell you about that day. That was one of the hardest days of my life. It is very hard to do nothing. And it was very rewarding. I don't see how the Jews did it every seventh day. They just did nothing. But they did. And maybe there's a big secret there. So just something to think about. Some of you already have been doing this for a long time. Talked to some guys out there in the welcome center. Hey, yeah, we've done that. I'm late to the party. Late to the party. But just want to share with you kind of what I'm learning in that regard. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are close to us. We thank you that you draw near, and sometimes when we're alone, that's when we can realize better than at other times that we're never really alone because you're going to draw near. You're going to be with us. You're going to strengthen us. You're going to come close. We learn things in solitude and silence, perhaps, that we can't learn in any other way. We thank you for Jesus modeling this for us, and then the apostles and then the Timothys and disciples down through the ages. And I ask your blessing upon each of those in 
of us in here in our secret, private lives with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.